It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the Australian National University. I'm from the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations in said university. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Maria Taflaga, also from the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi there, Maria. Hello. Hi, everyone. You were like, you know, totally animated by AUKUS and uh, all this, uh, you know, this, this spend fest. Oh, I'm excited about the amount of money we're about to spend. It's going it's to be amazing. Yeah, yeah. well, it's it, and it's good that there's so much rigour around it, isn't it? Um, that, uh, you know, we, we see this without really, let's be honest, not a huge amount of debate given the, the amount of money we're talking about. We've committed to what looks like $368 billion dollars. Admittedly, over well, a fairly long time, uh, between now and sort of, you know, 2050 or, or well, thereabouts. Yeah, I mean, we all know that there's not a cynical bone in my body. And so no, I've absolutely. just been thinking, you know, with, with pleasure and, and uh, warm thoughts about all the other sort of defence material projects in the past that, that have, have always so well. on budget and, and on time. So I'm looking forward to this one too <laughs> by what, 2020, 2040 or whatever it is. Well, 2040 is when the, uh, the, the sort of SSN AUKUS, which is the name of the new vessel, the new boat as oh. people describe it, which will be a British-designed submarine or at least based on a British design, the, the upgrade or the, the successor to their current astute class, it will have um, uh, it will be built in our case in Adelaide supposedly, I'll believe that when I see it, um, and uh, it will have uh, American technology, particularly American weapons systems on it, um, but it'll be largely based on a British design and that's the sort of tripartite thing, right? So that's what we've been hearing about for a long time and as I wrote on the weekend, uh, you know, typically deferential sort of response by Australia. We had to choose between our two great sort of parental partners, the Britain and the UK, uh, Britain and, and the Dad. USA, yeah, 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 and we chose both. You know, so the both the both <laughs> is that uh, we're going to have this tripartite thing, but also that we're going to buy these Virginia class nuclear submarines, which are very large and have crews of 135 in them and so forth, and we're going to buy up to five of them as well, and we're going to have a couple of them stationed here at, at uh, HMS Stirling in Western Australia before that. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's a highly complicated thing. I mean, how much of the work for for building of the, 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 the American submarines, because there's going to be a sort of an increase in their capacity. They At the moment, they only have two 
uh, two production lines for submarines in the in the US, and um, there's talk that there'll have to be a third or an up, you know significant upgrade to to those uh, production lines to meet their own demands and to meet the new demands from Australia. Looks like we'll be getting some second-hand boats and perhaps some new ones. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a huge thing, and uh, of course the the, the prime minister and. Uh, Prime Minister of Britain, Rishi Sunak, and and Joe Biden, the President of the US, have just made the announcement just before we've gone on air. Um, so um, it's uh, you know there's there's plenty of debate to be had, but there's a lot of blokes talking, a lot of blokes talking about a lot of money, and not a lot of. Um, I'm not saying that these figures haven't been arrived at with a good deal of consideration, but um, what we're about to discuss here today on this podcast, which is not defence, it's robo debt. Um, you know, it's interesting when you make the comparison between the sort of open wallet that we see for defence in the circumstances we see ourselves in and um, and the attitude that the government took in the past to clawing back money from people who had none and, 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 and who in many cases didn't owe debts at all. Yes. I mean, I think it does go to show, I suppose, where government priorities lie. And it's a good reminder that we're always making choices and and trade-offs. And I suppose on the sort of defence spending and capability stuff, it's always kind of good to remind ourselves that I believe it was the Rudd government that started this conversation about submarines and we still don't have any and we're still (laughs) using the Collins-class submarines, which were problematic or like, you know, literally had mechanical problems um, during, I think, the Keating government. So, yeah. It's it's interesting that uh, just before we get to Robert on, on that uh, question of submarines, I heard the other day that of the six Collins class that we have, and we're talking about having a lot more than six by the by the end of this new process, twelve presumably or even more of mixed mixed uh, genus. Um, uh, but of the of the six we have at the moment, there's often been two or three out of the water at any one time for maintenance, and that gets more and more problematic as as they get older, and they're having to have an a, an end of life extension now to sort of, you know, span this this capability gap even before we get to these, which will be partly addressed by these U.S. Virginia class being sort of stationed, and then the ones that we buy. But um, apparently, at the moment, there's no captain of any HMS. Collins class boat. I don't oh, know if wow. HMS is the right term, by the way, because I'm not all that naval. But um, anyway, of the Collins class submarines, none of them at the moment apparently has a has a commander. Oh dear, it <laughs> doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good, but it's all going to be addressed with a poultice of money, and uh, it's going to be good for the US because they get to project into the Indian Ocean in ways that uh, uh, they haven't been able to do as effectively as they would like with the um, against the growing might of China, and they and, and, and they get to do it with their vessels and our money. Um, it's, yeah, I mean... That, that's a pretty good deal. Definitely. Yes. Anyway, look, let's get to what we're going to discuss today because um, I don't profess any deep uh, defence expertise. And that is, as I said, robo-debt. And who better to talk to about robo-debt, the, the Royal Commission having just finished its hearings and being now in the stage where that all that evidence will be assessed and worked into a into the final commission report, which supposedly is 
going to come by the end of June, but who better to talk to than Rick Morton from the Saturday Paper, he's senior reporter at the Saturday Paper. Of course, he's author of the very well-received 100 Years of Dirt, an amazing book uh, that did very, very well. Rick is also author of an essay in the monthly magazine called Robo Debt and the Empathy Bypass. Uh, Rick, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me. I much appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure. And, and look, you've... Um, uh, I think it's fair to say covered the robo debt story for a long time, not just through these hearings, but um, you know, for you know, since it's been in the public realm, for better or worse, from 2017, yes, yes. And I suppose let's let's just sort of start fairly basic here in terms of of what it is, because I think it's important that when you get these terms like robo debt, just just give us the the, the best summation of what the robo debt program was. Yeah, that's a, it, it helps to underscore how pretty bad this was. So, mm. you know, under the social security system, people who get income support payments, in the legislation it says that that's based on how much money they earn in any given fortnight. So, if you earn more than the threshold, they reduce your payment until eventually you don't qualify at all, right? And that is discrete packets of fortnightly blocks. It's 26 in a year. Now, people have to report their income every fortnight under Centrelink and that's what people have been required to do and that's what they've always done. Uh, what RoboDebt did was decide to try and find what they thought were discrepancies in what people had reported to Centrelink versus what they might have reported, for example, to the Australian Taxation Office. Now, the tax office only collects the reported income for an entire year. So, you know, you might have earned uh, $12,000 in a year. Or let's Actually, let's use Stuart Roberts' example. You earn nothing for 25 fortnights, but then you earn a million dollars in one fortnight. Um, that could actually to happen to Stuart, Robert, I think. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you earn a million dollars in that back end. Now, according to the tax office, you earn a million dollars for the year. According to Social Security, you were qualified to get a payment in 25 fortnights, but not in that, that final fortnight. But when you average that, which is what RoboDebt did, it used income averaging over 26 fortnights from an annual figure. And it just applied that evenly um, for every fortnight. And it assumed then that you had been misreporting your income to Centrelink because suddenly you had figures popping up in those fortnightly blocks that you never earned. And so it assumed a lie on behalf of the people who had been receiving income support when really the lie was the fact that income averaging was mathematically inaccurate. And the other really pernicious part of this was that the onus of proof was was reversed. So once it made that assumption and raised debt that you owed on the basis of that that assumption from that that, uh, that algorithm, you know, people had to prove they didn't owe that money. Mm -hmm. Correct. And in fact, they completely subverted the, the entire old system, which was that Centrelink always had, the Department of Human Services always had these compulsory powers where they could go and check for more information if they thought that you were telling a fib. And so they could go to your employer and demand pay slips and they could go to a bank and demand bank statements. And one of the reasons um, at the very birth of RoboDebt that that was done away with was because there was a deregulation agenda under the Tony Abbott government. Um, and they thought, well, we're putting all this onus on poor old businesses to furnish pay slips. Why don't we just make the Centrelink customer, i.e. the person who was on income support, do all of that work for us. So they outsource the entire um, fact-finding mission of government, the entire apparatus of the Commonwealth onto individual people who were often still very poor, who had mental health conditions, chronic health conditions, and said, you go and prove that we're wrong, <laughs> even though 
we've got information as you know um, the department that says we probably are wrong on quite a large number of these debts, but we're going to make you prove it, and we might not listen to you if you do. And let's face it, you know, um, you know, people in this position, they're they're more likely to be moving more often. Um, so it's just natural that you might end up losing paperwork. That's but right. I, they're sort of precarious yeah, in the workforce, exactly. precarious in, uh, in housing. Sta- yeah. And yeah. what standing do they have with a former employer or a bank to compel information out of it? Like still, this business still has to provide the information compared to the Correct. Commonwealth, right? Like so there's lots of perversity in this. It was really topsy-turvy and you're right, like the whole point of income averaging being inaccurate is it's particularly, well, it's almost always inaccurate when you work multiple jobs or you work uneven income and that's um, a lot of these people were working five, six, seven different jobs in any given financial year because they were hopping from one to another um, or they were incapable of working full-time so they just did bits and bobs and suddenly going back six years because that's how far they could go back to they were eyeing off this what they thought was a pool of debt, even though it was just a pool of perhaps debt. Mm. They thought they had $1.2 billion worth of debt going back six years and they wanted it and that's what they made people do. They made them go backwards in time to try and track down old employers, Many of some of whom had gone bust who didn't exist anymore. You know, small businesses are always closing down around this country. The government would have been the first to tell you that, mm. but they made people check. It's amazing when you think about the 303, I think it was, billion dollars that was spent uh, in assistance during the uh, during the, the COVID emergency by by the same party in government, I might just say, and uh, you know broadly supported across the aisle in um, mm-hmm. in the parliament. Um, a good deal of which was on JobKeeper, you know, tens of billions of dollars, and uh, companies we know were, were were claiming that they didn't need it, um, that made record profits, that returned dividends to shareholders, and none of that money. None of that tens of billions of dollars, as distinct from possibly one point two billion or whatever, was um, was thought uh, it was thought appropriate that that should be clawed back, or even really sort of moral pressure placed on on those That's corporates right. to pay that money back. And it wasn't an insignificant amount. It was reported between somewhere between twenty seven and forty five billion dollars. Billion, you know. Do you raise a really important point there? Because the justification for not even being concerned about chasing that up was sort of believable in the sense that they couldn't have designed JobKeeper fast enough um, with all of those checks and balances in place and overall it did its job, right? Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I necessarily believe it, but you can make that argument. But they're not willing to do the same thing with welfare where they say that if we don't pursue every last single person who's um, not committing fraud because that's 0.1% of all welfare transactions, but every last person who makes a wrong claim accidentally or otherwise, then the system integrity falls over. But what they don't say is that it's important that the welfare system is there to protect people when they most need it. And yet, if one or two people get through who claim a payment that they they might not have been owed, then so what? Because the integrity of that system is meant to make sure that people have faith. Um, they never did that because, they, you know, my view is that they didn't care. Um, yeah. about the people who use that system. Well, I, I mean, I think I think the government and successive governments have shown that in in many ways, right? Like, um, like we know that just from the international literature around welfare spending, you know, a government might promise, let's use round numbers, like five billion dollars for a, a a program, but they don't really want people to claim that, so they'll ensure that the paperwork to get that payment mm. is actually really difficult and arduous as a disincentive for people to claim it, and then you might often find that that 
program is underspent. And and we sort of see plenty of examples of that from, from around the world. I mean, I also thought it was really quite interesting, and it's related directly to this, exactly what you've, we've been talking about. Like the, one of the first things that the current minister, Bill Shorten, said about the welfare sector was ending what he called the digital workhouse, which I thought was really um like I think a potentially a really positive step and removing the onus from citizens claiming what is effectively a right that they're supposed to be able to receive. And so, for example, like I remember applying for um, maternity leave payment, right? Mm. And I, I have a doctorate. I am a high social capital person with a lot of skills and an, yep. an ability to pass information. And it, it took me a week to to put this form in and I I like I remember being extremely frustrated mm. uh, by it and I needed to get lots of information that I knew the government already possessed, yeah. right, in order to get this um, payment. And so you can imagine if you are, uh, you know, unwell in any way or have low literacy or uh, you don't have very much time, like you don't have the spoons, right, <clears throat> then there are all of these barriers in place to being able to access a, a safety net, which is, let's be blunt, not always very generous, particularly to people on unemployment benefit, right? And and it kind of goes to the sort of narrative that we have in this country around means testing, um, which we generally think of as this really great thing. But what we never really think about is the administrative cost. And and that is actually what Rick was kind of talking about just before in, in relation to the integrity, like this, this emphasis on the integrity of the system. And the actual, we never talk about the attendant cost of chasing down four bucks or like say a hundred dollars here, like the, what it actually costs to chase that money down and whether or not it is even frankly worth worth mm. worth doing given that most of these things are actually just clerical errors because it's a digital workhouse and it's not easy to do. It's no, complex. No, the, and the brief, the original brief that went to Scott Morrison um, outlining all of the welfare compliance stuff when he became social services minister from DHS was explicit. They said, you know, this stuff's really hard and the vast majority of things that go wrong are because the system is so complex. Mm-hmm. Um that people didn't have a hope of understanding it. So there's not really fraud in that sense that you're trying to clamp down on. It's honest errors and also stuff that we could fix on our end, but we've just never bothered to do. Now, I want to go to uh, the legality of it, which is a critical issue here, and and mm. I guess to the timelines. We'll do that in a minute. But just, just I think it's important to make this point also about, you know, because we started off talking about Stuart Roberts' example of mm. um, uh, Stuart Robert was the former human services minister. Is that the correct title? Gov- government services, government service, they called correct, him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he had that, that, as you say, that model, that idea that you could earn nothing for 25 weeks and then earn a million dollars in the 26th week or whatever it was. Fortnight, yeah. Fortnight, yes. Now, th- th- of course, if that was the case, then I guess a lot of people might say, well, you know, you, you, if you've earned a million dollars, you're in some sort of shape to pay back. You know, I mean, it might not be right, but nonetheless, it's a pretty, it's a, it's an absurd example, really, because yes. what we're actually talking about is, as you described it, Rick. You know, people who earn money in bids, bibs and bobs, who um, have casual work, some of sometimes which is there and sometimes which isn't, and so forth, and who are trying to augment their income to make it through on a subsistence level of of money, and. They don't have 
built up. It's not like they're saving money for a, no. for a point at which they can. And you know. in fact, you can't get income support or certainly job seeker if you've got a certain amount of money in the bank anyway. Yeah, so. that's right. So you wouldn't get it if you got the million dollars in the first week. You no. wouldn't be getting any income that year no. from from. We're talking about people who are doing seasonal work or who are students. Even there were a lot of students mm-hmm. early on. Yeah, um, who were working in the the school holidays, um, but then having to study and crack down. And that was how they supported themselves. But suddenly they thought that this total sum reported to the income um, to the tax office was their, you know, it put them over the threshold in the weeks when they were at university earning nothing. Yeah. But the averaging told a lie. Um, and and weirdly, uh, not weirdly, but like importantly, these are people, particularly those on income support, who were doing exactly what the government wanted them to do, which was go out and find work and quote unquote support themselves. Yeah as much as they could. Yeah, meant to be a virtue. Let's take a very quick break there and we'll come back and we'll get into the uh, into the sort of when it started and its legality. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Uh, You're listening, of course, to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. Rick Morton. Let's let's get the timeline. This is 2014 when it starts. Um, yeah, so there's there's an idea already kicking around that uh, some senior people within Department of Human Services um, are working on. Um, it's not nothing's formal, but um, are kicking around an idea to go backwards in time and look at all this discrepancy in debt, right? Um, and before it even gets briefed up to anyone in ministerial land, they decide to go over to the Department of Social Services, which is sort of the the sister agency that handles policy and legislation, uh, and ask for some advice uh, on this idea. And DSS comes back after having gone to their own legal internal legal team uh, in October and November 2014, and the legal advice is very clear. It was second counselled by a woman called Anne uh, Anne Pulford um, and Simon Jordan, I think, um, or there was a Jordan advice so it was two lawyers and it said you can't do this uh this would be completely inconsistent with the social security legislation in that the amount of income is only assessed in the fortnight that it was earned and using income averaging in this way um would be completely inconsistent with that it'd be inconsistent with that yeah they get a no and 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 it would lead to mistakes as well it'd lead to people being charged for money they didn't know Correct, correct. There's a legal problem and a mathematical problem, both yep. of which should have been front of mind. And so Scott Morrison is, when's he coming to? He's, he's the minister in 2014, I believe. 
Uh, so he becomes, so Kevin Andrews at this point is the, the social services minister under the Abbott government. And interestingly, Tony Abbott's government signed a, a debt policy, which basically said there's $10 billion worth of personal debt out there owed to the Commonwealth. Mm. And there was a cross-government initiative to try and get that money back. Um, so this stuff has been cooked up, but there's no evidence that there was any explicit intervention before that. Morrison becomes social services minister in, I think it's December 2014, very late in the year. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing because Maurice Payne, Senator Maurice Payne, is the human services minister. Um, But she goes on leave for the summer and arranges for her secretary, Catherine Campbell, at the Department of Human Services to brief Scott Morrison Right. At social services. Ordinarily, they would not be briefing each other. And he is the senior minister anyway. Correct. He's the cabinet minister yes. that goes to cabinet and human services is not in cabinet. And so he gets a brief very late in December. I think it's after Christmas but before New Year from Catherine Campbell. It's just a welcome to the portfolio brief. But he asks in that meeting, um, you know, signals an interest in welfare compliance. What can we do on integrity? And Catherine Campbell, being the secretary, goes back and in early the first week of January, marshals her troops uh, within the department and says, go forth, shake the tree, what can you get me? And that's when the message goes out to DHS, um, let's bring up some proposals, some options, and they are just options. Um, and DHS, the, the, the managers, all in compliance and integrity, they've got this idea, it's been kicking around since June. Um, it's in the drawer. It's just... It's in the drawer, but it's just going to be an idea, one of 12, that they're going to put to Scott Morrison. So that's what they do. They put a brief to Scott Morrison on the 12th of February 2015 that says, here are some options. And he likes it. He, he does. He, he circles it, doesn't he? He's, uh, uh, just he circles Pursue. Pursue, that's right. Yes, I remember reading this. And, uh, and Pursue, they do. And Pursue, they do. Now, at this point, it's really important to note that in that brief, which had input from the Department of Social Services, they say that if you want to do this, um, there will be um, some policy and legislative change required. Yeah, so it requires a legal change. Correct. Yes. Now, the the legal advice itself is not given to Scott Morrison. It's not given to his office. But in that brief, it says you will need to um, – it's likely that there will need to be some changes made. DSS has advised. Yeah. That's the extent of it. Yeah. Now, what happens between then and uh, March is that there are some problems because they know that – uh, DSS is against this and they're really against this and this is DHS people they know that social services are against this because of the income averaging in particular um, and so they need to find a way around it now something happens we don't know exactly what but there is a really critical meeting between senior people at social services and the Department of Human Services on the 27th of February 2015 and we have testimony from other people who were at that meeting that said that Mark Withnall and Scott Britton, who were there from DHS, one of them gave assurances that suddenly this plan to save $1.2 billion with 866,000 interventions automated would no longer use income averaging. Now, DSS took, according to their evidence, they believed that at the time in that meeting. Now, Mark Withnall and Scott Britton leave that meeting and on the very same day, 27th of February, Jason Ryman, who is the project leader um, of what will become RoboDeb, um, makes revisions to the draft new policy proposal that outlines this stuff and removes all reference to income averaging. It just completely deleted that that section. And when you say that, the sorry, key. sorry to interrupt you, when you say mm. that policy proposal, are we talking about the cabinet submission now? Yes. yes. So we're talking about a submission, uh, well, the portfolio budget submission. Yeah. Um, well, actually, that's not necessarily true. We're talking about a new policy proposal that will become 
the portfolio budget submission. But this is the very first time beyond the brief on the 12th of February where Scott Morrison gets the actual proposal, what it would look like, what it would cost, all of this stuff um, that he can take to and, Cabinet. And right? so deleting it, is that so it's more likely to pass Cabinet because that is that the reason why that's significant? It's, no, it's significant and it depends on who you believe. But the evidence is um, it's deleted because DSS was told it would be not part of the policy. Uh-huh. And DSS could only support it if they believed income averaging was not being used. Because DSS because had already been advised that it, had, that it that it's wasn't illegal. lawful. Yeah. So they had this inconvenient legal advice, right? But what they did was just delete the reference in the new policy proposal. It had already been drafted. They just took out the reference to income averaging. Nothing else changed. And the, bu- and, and, and the budget number in terms of the saving Correct. relied on income averaging. Relied on oh, income. Okay. It could only have been achieved mm. that way. Mm. And none of the figures changed. Nothing substantial about the policy changed except they literally just removed. It's like saying, like telling the police I was speeding um, but then taking away the admission but speeding anyway. Like it's just. Mm. The mechanism um, of putting your foot on the accelerator. Is Correct. Removed. It yeah. was still in the it, well, the, the language describing that was removed, mm-hmm. but the mechanism remained. Yeah. And that goes to Scott Morrison and that goes to Cabinet and the um, proposition put to all of the key witnesses was that that was apt to mislead Cabinet. Right. And, you know, and, and we're left in a really difficult position now. It's like how much did any of the ministers at this point in time actually know and this is one of the things, I guess, that uh, many people who, anyone who's, who's sort of watched the, the, the coverage, seen some of your uh, excellent coverage on it throughout, uh, or, or seen perhaps less saturation coverage in some other mm. outlets, uh, will have, will have seen the testimony from, there was a cavalcade of ministers, Stuart Robert, Alan Tudge, I think, uh, Christian Porter, Scott Morrison, yep. Malcolm Turnbull, two former PMs. Of yeah. Maurice Payne. Maurice Payne. She's always well. been always been sidelined by Scott Morrison. Poor old Maurice. Yes, she has, hasn't she? Including over AUKUS. Um, as yeah. Another matter. Um, and but but so one of the things that we've anyone will have taken from that coverage is that they will have seen all of these ministers come up there and and they will have seen all of these public servants and there's there's a sort of a there's a kind of a membrane between them or at least that's what mm. the ministers are trying to mm. say that there were things they weren't told stuff they didn't know things they sh- perhaps should have asked but didn't ask or whatever and we have public servants on the other hand who uh, feel like they were the impression we get is that they were trying Trying to serve the government, which had made very clear uh, the outcomes that it wanted in sort of policy terms, and they were really just going about delivering it. So, you know, it's a bit of a circle jerk. It is, and it's really tough to unpick. And I've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other throughout these hearings because I'm part of me wonders. I'm like, I don't, I haven't heard any evidence where the ministers were told any of this stuff, um, even obliquely. Having said that, um, we learned in the last week of hearings just gone that Maurice Payne in a meeting with Catherine Campbell, made a note um, in her notebook saying, yes. what can we do without having to legislate? Yes. Um, and we know that the Senate was a basket case um, in terms of if you're the government and you want to get stuff through. And we know that that was definitely the preference was to, you know, they just wanted, what they wanted was to do the easiest thing for any government, including Labor when they were in, which was to kick people on welfare, change DSP support rules, um, put single parents under welfare. No one complains because everyone is invested in having a go at their um, their fellow citizens who they think are, you know, bludging off the system, right? That's just... The- yeah, so this this was one of those things. It met the budget, uh, you know, um, a requirement of, uh, yeah. of of repairing or helping to repair the bottom line, albeit 
you know, a fairly piecemeal sort of thing, really, in the in the grander scheme of things. But it also met the ideological frame of the government, which Correct. was about you know clamping down on welfare cheats and and um, and you know, self-reliance, and yeah, it was meant it to be easy. And there was tick and flick. It was tick and flick, and there was no political downside, as far as they could no, see, right? There, not, this was not none. their constituency, and no one really reports on the poor with any any great gusto. And they didn't give a fuck. Not to yeah. put too fine a point on no. it. Um, so, 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 okay, so, so they do a pilot, and so the, yes. where, what happens next in the ministerial sort of what in the so sausage? Very fast. Yeah. So, so within um, uh, Scott Morrison. Ticking pursue and the new policy proposal work beginning. It's six or seven days, I think, and then by um, March six or April, seven days. Or, yeah, days. So it's fast, and then by March twenty fifth from memory, but end of March it's approved by the expenditure review committee, um, and then it's in the budget in May two thousand fifteen, um, and it starts in June 2015 with what they call the manual process. Now, even people in the human services were kind of tricked by their own language here because they called it a manual process. Therefore, they thought this wasn't part of robo-debt right. because it wasn't automatic. They were still having Centrelink compliance officers check the customer record. But this whole system was a trial and it, in, it used income averaging. And we know and we've known through the Royal Commission that people who had debts raised under this system had inaccurate debts raised because it was income average. And of course they did. Yeah. And we know of at least one um, Reese, a 28-year-old florist and musician who would later um, kill himself because of a debt letter he received from debt collectors about a debt from this manual phase, this trial. And this was one of the uh, you know, strongest elements of uh, this Royal Commission, wasn't it? The direct testimony from people who were affected by this appalling uh, breach of governmental duty, this, this massive failure of good governance. We saw the human cost of it. We, we heard people talking about how it made them feel, about the impact it had, about relationships that broke down, about family members lost. It was harrowing. Must have been very harrowing for you covering it. Look, it genuinely was, and I'm not, you know, I normally don't like journalists talking about how difficult their jobs are <laughs> because no. we're pretty lucky, all things considered. But, um, you know, I've got some some lived experience of this stuff. You know, I remember, you know, a single parent household raised in poverty and hearing my mum, you know, Centrelink would often make mistakes, administrative errors, where they would ring up and say, oh, actually, we overpaid you, you owe us money. Yeah. And it's a big hit. It's 500 bucks, which is everything to us. Mm. And mum is just frayed. Like her nerves are just absolutely fucking buckshot. Mm. Um, and you're made to feel like you're the wrong one, even though this was always their error. Um, it was just just really demoralizing in for people who are already kind of ground down with the system. And that was when mum, you know, on the face of it, actually did owe the money. I mean, it was a mistake, but she owed it. Um, this were These were people who were just, they couldn't fathom how, these debts were owed. They couldn't figure it out in their own heads. And in one particular case, there was another suicide that we heard about. Um, and I'll, I'll, this is important because this, these were both in 2017 after the automatic process begins. Um, but this woman killed herself after receiving a reminder notice about money that she was said to have owed under robo-debt. Now, on her Centrelink file, there was an employment employer separation certificate and had that been checked, it would have shown them in DHS that they were completely wrong, that this woman never owed a, a red cent, nothing. And it was a frequent testimony of frontline compliance officers who knew, by the way, from the very beginning that this was wrong, um, but the managers wouldn't listen to them. They weren't allowed to check the client record 
Um, let's uh, we 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 we'll run out of time. We're in danger. No, no, so, I can so, talk forever. No, no, and look, it's 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 so uh, so valuable to have the the insights that you've brought here. It's uh, it's really uh, an amazing level of detail that you've managed to sit through and, and make sense of for so many people. So we're very grateful for you doing that. I was staggered. Um, I'm just pick out a few things. I was staggered mm. by um, Stuart Roberts' testimony about his own doubts about the scheme and yet his defence of it uh, as the need to maintain what he called cabinet solidarity, which the Royal Commissioner Catherine Holmes was incredulous about. Um, oh, God. Uh, he said, that's what we do, ma'am. Um, <laughs> and she said, what, uh, withhold vital information? Oh, I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know. Uh, misrepresent things to, to the Australian public. That's right, yes. She said with the incredulity in her voice. Um, and she was so effective right throughout the, the, the Royal Commission, right throughout the hearings, so effective in conveying that and getting some of these professional witnesses, if I can put them like that, that is cabinet ministers and Scott Morrison's uh, appearance in the uh, in the witness stand was a great example of this, you know, where he tried to answer every bloody thing other than the question oh, that was being asked and reframed things and tried to introduce evidence into his answers that was from parliament and so forth. And yes. the exchanges were, were riveting. <laughs> at, and uh, At one point he's like, can we, I, I just want to take you back to 1984. And she said, oh, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know I, I I've it. never related so hard to something in my life. I mean, the, I mean, there's a sort of deep irony here, actually. Like going to the the Stuart Robert quote, right? You know, here they are, notionally trying to protect the integrity of the system, and there's you know a, a, a reasonable body of evidence to suggest that's not necessarily the concern. Mm. Like that's. That's, you know, ironic when the sort of, I guess, the communication aspect isn't really displaying um, integrity. But I, I suppose um, what I really want to kind of know, Rick, is that it sounds like Cabinet actually had many opportunities to engage with this scheme and to assess it over its long and troubled history. And, I mean, you know, you've you've listened to the evidence. Is, is it actually fair to say that, 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 that they mostly took the opportunity to turn away or or is it a more nuanced picture? Oh, look at you asking me for nuance. Um, <laughs> look, no, I, and I said from the beginning, there are two key elements to this. One is how the damn thing began in the first place, and that's tricky when it comes to ministerial intervention. What did they know? Who knew what? Um, the second one is how did it continue? Now, Alan Tudge really copped it at the Royal Commission because he was the Minister for Human Services, responsible completely for every element of implementation of RoboDebt when all of these key concerns began to kick off. Uh, in the media, in public, we've got people claiming about false debts. There's articles written by Peter Martin, who's an economist, about the fact that income averaging would just be wrong and unlawful. Um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull at the time sent that article to Alan Tudge and said, what the hell? Alan Tudge came back early from his holidays to sort this out. What he did was not order an investigation into the elements of this scheme, but was to um, get sign-off from the chief counsel of DHS, Annette Mussolino, to leak the information of welfare recipients who actually complained about this. He did that with Reese, who killed himself, um, you know, it, despite his own chief of staff saying, oh, we probably shouldn't, it would look bad if we go after someone who killed themselves. Oh, my God. Um, they, they backgrounded journalists anyway. And at no point, um, um, he was asked about this, Alan Tudge. He was asked, you know, you, you went through all of this effort. You got the chief counsel to get you legal advice on releasing this stuff, did you bother to ask about the legal standing 
of the scheme itself or were you only interested in going after people who couldn't defend themselves? And he didn't have an answer for that. There was no standing order to the department to go, what the hell is going on? Um, and that's part, of, that's part of the problem. There was a lack of um, a, a terrible, terrifying lack of curiosity. But also when Christian Porter was acting for Alan Tudge before he came back, Christian Porter um, was deliberately, um, the department deliberately withheld information from him in a key brief, um, in talking points that went to his office that just did not mention mm. income averaging. So what did uh, what did this tell us? I, I'm going to ask a question that has sort of two endings to it and you can so it operates as two questions but the same first part. What did it mm. tell us about the public service and what did it tell us about the media? Let's go to the public yeah. service first. Yeah, it told us the public service is broken, um, that there are careerists in the public service who saw their duty not just to serve the government because that is part of their core principles, right, um, but to do it at all costs. And it really was at all costs because it's not just people who suffered um, on welfare, but their own careers and reputations are now suffering because this was always, you know, despite their best efforts to keep this as secret as it was for as long as it was, not even a class action could have got some of this stuff out in the open. It was only this Royal Commission that has allowed it. Um, it was always going to come back to bite them. And so there was just this kind of, they declared their fealty to the government and they bent over backwards to deliver even illegal things, which is just... I mean, that's a diseased and rotten public mm. service, if you ask me. It's not just a few bad apples. It's a culture. And the media, well, the media, this whole thing went on as long as it did because the media just wasn't interested. And I count myself in this early on. Like there was a piece where I tried to get involved in RoboDebt early on and I just didn't understand it. Um, and I was, you know, I was writing about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which is a whole other um, complete um, complex fiasco mm, mm. um but i didn't understand it and you know it was being covered by the guardian um, by christopher north at the guardian he was one of the first journals ben eltham but beyond that it didn't have cut through and as is typically the case unless you've got the big players um like fairfax media like the australian like the tabloids really hammering this kind of thing it falls by the wayside and that's exactly the attitude that it was met with from alan tudge's office um, according to Rochelle Miller, his former senior media advisor, that it was just the left-wing media that cared and therefore they didn't care at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, Maria? I mean, it's, you know, if it's not uh, being picked up by, by, the, by the heavies, you know, um, then uh, particularly a conservative government's thinking, well, it's not well really, we're not losing yeah. any votes over it. I mean, I think it says two things, right? Like, one, it sort of actually shows how important the, the, the I guess, the sort of rebalancing of the ideological spectrum you know, I mean, when you got the Oz at one end, or the mm. or the tabloids at one end, and and the rise of the Guardian and the Saturday paper, sort of providing that kind of balance, because you know before that, like the most left wing paper in the country was the Age, and and you know by comparison, then all you know New Matilda, which is read by a smaller number of people, um, yep. yeah. So 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 that's kind of like important. You know, as Rick kind of said, like, where would this be? But I also think of building the education revolution, which was <clears throat> about, I think, $3 billion. Like, it was 3% of a giant holes. program. Exactly. I mean, and I, I believe in this scheme, no one did die. Um, and the, the, Not the, in school halls. No, no, that's right. And the, the sort of, and if you think about that and compared to the amount of money that wasn't required to be spent or wasted to use that word for JobKeeper. Like it does yep. show the power of um, the media to sort of set the agenda, but also it's distortionary capacity. And, and, you know, are we actually yep. kind of comfortable with that? 
Well, I mean, we know. I worked at The Australian and there was a Chris Mitchell, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, prided himself on his ability to turn anything into a campaign. Uh, the NBN was another one. School halls was very much driven by him. And these are all important issues of public policy, I must say. And this is the annoying thing. When did it ever become left-wing to care? In fact, I know that there's a couple of conservative commentators out there who actually think that this is an incredibly important conservative issue. So when did it ever become left or right wing to care that a government is abusing its power against its own citizens? It's literally a tenant of liberalism. We are terrified 100%. of state power. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, because of this this corrosive um, ideology of like kind of alt-rightism and, you know, this um ideological culture war, which is not conservative, right-wing, left-wing. It's something else entirely. Tribal. It's a Frankenstein's yeah. monster. Mm. Yeah. It's disgusting, right? But that has allowed people to say, oh, they're poor people who gives a shit. Mm. Um, and that's what happened. We didn't have the critical mass to, to tip this over into a scandal when it should have been a scandal. And as you as you said, it was even when you tried to cover it yourself, it was kind of complicated. Uh, it, even now at, when we sit at this end of the Royal Commission trying to work out its exact genesis, what, who knew exactly what at I what mean, time and how conclusively then. Yeah. Journalists would be. I mean, I know that um, Martin Mackenzie Murray, who wrote um, the story of Reese Calzo, um, the 28-year-old florist and musician for the Saturday paper in 2017 um, about his suicide and the fact that it was a robo-debt, um, he actually deliberately never mentioned anywhere in that article that Reese's suicide was linked to robo-debt because they didn't know if it was or not. All they knew was that he was being hounded by Centrelink debt collectors. But the entire um, defensive strategy from Tudge's office was to say, you've got this wrong, it wasn't even a robo-debt, you are lying, you need to correct the record. There was so much pressure put on them that it became a really quite scarring experience and what we've heard from this Royal Commission is that they were 100% right. Um, Reese's debt was a manual intervention debt, but it involved income averaging. It was wrong. He died. And so journos were met with this wall of resistance yeah. um, that the best ones saw through. Yes, that's true. And so often, as is the case with these things, it's about sticking to it, sticking to the story. And um, we've seen some great examples in that. We've also seen some examples where even through this and even through the coverage of this commission where some media outlets chose not to stick to it at all. Uh, and uh, I don't think that, uh, as we've just been discussing, reflects well on them in terms of even, as you say, basic conservative values about um, keeping the power of the state in check and keeping and just, government yeah, accountable. Institutions. Yeah. Yeah, institutions that's right. need to serve the public. That's right. And and the, and the public service, as you say, I mean, a, a broken institution in some ways. I've been complaining about this for a long time, this sort of yeah. m almost merging of the political office with the top levels of the public service Correct. so that you – you have senior public service who servants who who affect a, a sort of sitting in council with the senior political advisors. Everyone has the same agenda. Make the minister happy because the minister can you know holds the holds the whip hand in terms of of their career and their employment. And that is not what public servants are meant to do. They are meant to administer. They are meant to give frank and fearless advice. They are meant to be able to tell governments what they don't want to hear if that is necessary. Mm -hmm. And they're meant to have the courage and the separation to do it. And we haven't seen evidence of that in a lot of areas and particularly in this one. Rick, thanks so much for uh, for your time. Um, we could talk further about this and I hope that we can get to talk further about this because this report will come out in the middle of the year. I think there'll yeah. be plenty more to say about it. And if Absolutely. you'd be willing to come back and talk to us again, we, we, we'd always, all ears. 
any any time at all. I don't think Commissioner Catherine Holmes is going to um, be very backwards in coming forwards in her report. No, I don't. She doesn't really strike me as someone who's um, likely to be um, reticent in saying what needs to be said. So, um, yeah, a point well made. Maria, thanks very much. Pleasure. That is Democracy Sausage for this week. Um, now, we do have a new email address, which is good because uh, you know, there's a few little sort of internal organisational changes, uh, structural changes here. So we now have uh, our own email address. It only took us three and a half years or whatever it is. Um, it's democracysausage at anu.edu.au. I'll give you that again, democracysausage at anu. .edu.au. So if you want to uh, give us some feedback, got some ideas, any sort of uh, um, thoughts at all about Democracy Sausages, perhaps uh, suggestions of where we might go with the program. Or questions. Or questions, yeah. Then by all means, uh, you can get in touch with us directly through that. And uh, with that, that's the podcast for this week. Adieu. Adieu. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.